This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Scott Horton. So he's the director of the Libertarian Institute and the editorial director of Antiwar.com and the host of the Scott Horton Show and Antiwar Radio. So he's also the author of a couple of books I wanted to mention that we talked about a lot in the show, and that's the 2021 book called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, and the 2017 book called Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. So I need to give a quick shout out to one of my teammates at the Forge here in Edmond, Oklahoma, Robert Storkson. So he kind of turned me on to Scott Horton in some of his work, even though I had kind of heard of him a little bit uh, before then. But it really kind of maybe in earnest want to kind of get this guy on, kind of talk with him a little bit. So, uh, again, if you just even look at the title of this episode, you're gonna be like, wait, what? And so it's the anti-war libertarian anarchist. OK, so all of those titles, anti-war libertarian and anarchist are all things that he would consider himself to be. But we do spend time in this podcast uh, elucidating that out further because you probably have a lot of conceptions, possibly misconceptions about what each one of those things would mean. And so we do a little bit of definitional work in this podcast. And this podcast is going to be a little bit different. So I know for some of you guys out there, I know I have a lot of conservatives in my audience, a lot of people that are veterans and different things like that. I know to some of you, you're going to wonder why didn't I interrupt in certain times? Why didn't I, you know, ask him to, you know, fact check this or why didn't I play devil's advocate here or there? Guys, there wasn't really a whole lot of time for that. I came into this interview today wanting to be just highly curious about his position on different things because as you go through his books, which, you know, the books will be there in the show notes so you can check them out for yourself, you're going to have a lot of the same thoughts that I did and, you know, you're going to want to ask him those questions. And guys, we didn't get to really most of my questions that I wanted to talk about today, but we still, I wanted him to have enough runway to where he could describe his viewpoint and kind of how he how his brain thinks through these different things but we do talk about you know what is a libertarian you know how do they kind of align with that left right divide or you know republican conservative divide you know we got into why he's anti-war but also we get into afghanistan because obviously he's written a lot and spoken a lot about getting out of afghanistan and then we did what did he think about the withdrawal you know if he could go all the way back 20 years before that to 9-11 and he were the supreme ruler I asked him you know what would you have done right because this is a guy that doesn't think war is, is necessary in any way, shape, or form. So we got into a little bit of that. And then we, we, we looked at some quotes and, you know, we looked at some different citations and why one book has no citations and one has a whole bunch. But then at the end, I thought it was interesting because I wanted to ask him, because I know when people uh, read his work or listen to things that he says, some of them immediately come away with this impression that this guy is just anti-America. He hates his country. He hates America. He doesn't trust anybody, any of those types of things. So I asked him about that directly. And so we got to get his answer there at the end. So guys, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, you know, I had fun. I had, I had fun listening to him and kind of getting a sense of how everything connected for him. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Scott Horton, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay. I'm so excited to talk to you. And I told you that off air because you, you've got a lot of things uh, that you've worked on that we haven't exactly talked about on the show before, even though we've been around for a really, really long time. But I guess we should start uh, somewhat generically. And let's talk about being a libertarian. And so you are the director of the Libertarian Institute. Now I will say that probably a lot of people's understanding of 
the the whole uh, ideal of being a libertarian begins and ends with stuff that Ron Swanson said on Parks and Rec, right? And so yeah. they don't exactly get. Hey, that's you know, not a full, bad start, you know. It's it's really not a bad start, and he's got a fantastic mustache. But uh, I think that there are some people that might call themselves libertarian that don't really agree with a lot of the foundations of that that viewpoint and all that. So let's just start there. What does it mean to be a libertarian? Yeah, well, libertarianism itself is the unified field theory of liberty, right? So it includes natural rights theory and Austrian school economics and a lot of very critical revisionist history. And we have our own kind of theory of class war. Unlike the commies, uh, we don't see it as rich versus poor. Libertarians see it as those who are productive versus those who live off of coercion. And so that could mean, you know, essentially anyone on the scale. Although obviously... It's, you know, the very richest people, not even the 1%, but the one-tenth of 1% who, uh, you know, uh, control the vast majority of the biggest corporations and that kind of thing, um, own the most stock and that in, in the biggest corporations. They're the ones who have the most influence over the state. And especially, I mean, look at America. Anyone could tell you, too, there's nothing special libertarianism. It's just mm. we're the ones who notice all these things all going on at the same time and, and, and can explain why it's like that. But America is ruled by bankers, by the arms industry, by big agriculture, big pharmaceutical companies, right? When I was a kid, Ross Perot ran for president. And he said, right. it's the American people versus the special interests. Hmm. Well, what the hell does that mean? That means right. oil. Did I leave out oil? That means yeah, you left out oil. oil and banking and arms, and medicine, and agriculture, right? It means the biggest industries in manufacturing, which is, you know, the arms industry to a great degree. Uh, and then they capture the state. And the regulatory state belongs to them. It's mostly there to protect them from competition in the free market. And I think this is one of the great insights of libertarianism, is essentially that progressivism... Now, and people... Not, not all libertarians will agree with this framing. <clears throat> However... It's very instructive, I think, and, and people, you really want to read the best. Read Murray Rothbard, The Left and Right, Prospects for Liberty from 1965, where he explains that essentially progressivism is a right-wing plot. And by right-wing, meaning the very most powerful capitalists. So if you go back in history, it's, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan, in fact, where did I learn this? I think this is from uh, Anthony Sutton, uh, that in like 1889 or something like that, J.P. Morgan turned to Thomas W. Lamont Sr. on his board of directors and said, Lamont, you're in charge of this whole left wing thing, you know, and then that was it. Right. So then what did Lamont do? Did he go and crush them all? No, he went and bought them off. Right. That was what he did was he bought off all the labor unions to prevent real communism. Thank God. Right. Mm -hmm. We'd all starved to death a long time ago. But was it that J.P. Morgan was a libertarian, you know, ideological uh, devotee of laissez faire free market economics? No. no, of course not. Right. He was yeah. just trying to protect his own interests. And it turned out that short of Marxism. What the left wants is progressivism, right? A regulated, a heavily regulated economy, right. a quasi free market, a mixed economy, as they teach us in government school. Well, that's what J.P. Morgan wanted, too, right? He didn't want free market competition with anyone new and upcoming. 
he wanted essentially a quasi-fascist system, right? This well, mixed economy. And so just real quick. No, you're good. Um, in if you there's, you know, some real irony here and it's a little confusing, but then there's enlightenment, right? So you look at Woodrow Wilson, the Democrat. Well, his Cheney was a guy named Edward Mandel House. Skateboarders from Austin, Texas will recognize House Park is named after the guy. He wrote a book in 1910 called Philip Drew Administrator. And it was about, wouldn't it be great if America was a fascist dictatorship and I was the fascist dictator, right? That's what it's all about, right? It's a novel, a very poorly written novel, but it's essentially like, one, it's the daydream of this guy, but also he's really kind of setting the standard and he's laying down what is what was meant to be perceived as the new consensus for the power elite and the, you know, the Eastern establishment going forward, that this is what we believe now. We don't believe in the constitution. We don't believe in a limited Republic. We don't believe in free market capitalism. Everybody knows we need strong, wise men to control everything and make it all great. Now the blueprint described in Philip Drew is exactly the regimentation of the economy that was implemented during World War I under Woodrow Wilson. You will recognize the same economic program loosely defined as the New Deal, hmm. right? The Democrats program for, you know, essentially, um, and this, you know, started obviously starting with Wilson and then especially with FDR, but you have central banking, progressive income taxation, and you have essentially the growth of this massive fourth branch of government, the regulatory state. And in Philip Drew, they go so far as to have a government bureaucrat on every board of directors of any important company and this kind of thing. But, you know, later, see, you know, you might know that in history, Mussolini, when he first came around, was the toast of the town. It sure. wasn't until later he got such a bad reputation for his uh, war in Ethiopia and aligning with Hitler and all of these things, right? So when he first kind of came out and was regimenting the Italian state and economy, Edward Mandela House complained that I anticipated Mussolini by several years, right? And he wanted the credit for really coining fascism. And so then here's where I get you in your irony bone, right? If the liberal Democrats have been fascists for all this time, well, then what the hell does that make the conservative Republicans? who favor a powerful state to favor the most powerful corporations at the expense of the little guy all along. In fact, you can look at left and right wing in economic terms in America, and I don't mean between communists and fascists, but I just mean between liberals and conservatives, basically, okay. right? Like um, uh, lowercase s socialists and lowercase uh, c conservative, uh, lowercase f fascists, basically, right? Um, they both want to rig the economy for supply at the expense of the customer, right? So the, the liberal side favoring progressivism and labor unions and all of that, they want to protect essentially the workers, right? The suppliers, the, the, the labor that work at the corporations that produce the things. The conservatives want to rig the economy to favor the business owners, the suppliers, right? But in free market capitalism, as Ludwig von Mises taught, in the free market, the customer is king. And it's the consumer who is, you know, the driver 
of all business activity. As the, the owners of capital and the producers and the managers are all racing to try to figure out what we want and how to keep us happy. But if they can use the political means of the state to rig the economy to protect their favorite interests, I left out the labor unions earlier, I shouldn't have, they go in the pile too, right? then they can rig the economy at the expense of the customer. Medicine is the perfect example of this, right? Where we don't have a socialist healthcare system in America. We have a fascist, a, a lower lowercase f fascist, uh, quasi-free market, extremely regulated market, including lots of socialism and welfare benefits for the poor and all that, of course, Medicare and Medicaid and all those kinds of things. But at the top of the game, as you know, as we've all lived through the last few years, no question about it. The pharmaceutical companies right. own the state. They've captured the state that regulates them. And so um, the libertarian insight is that, and thus it will always be, right? That's why you shouldn't let the there be an FDA in the first place, because it's going to always be essentially captured by the major corporations. And then the government will be used against the people. They'll force us even to take their products, um, you know, at the threat of being forced out of our jobs, or if they had their way, they'd probably threaten us with arrest. They thought they could get away with it uh, for refusing to take their vaccines and this kind of deal. But certainly you see the way they rig prices, the way they prevent competition in hospitals, and you know all of the, all of the ways that um, they regulate. Um, you know, uh, if you look at the stats of all the great drugs that eventually were approved, that were good drugs, but that took years and years mm -hmm. and years to be approved. And the more you're like kind of an underground new company, the harder it is to get approved when, you know, because the FDA favors Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and all mm -hmm. the big firms that are already there, you know, this kind of thing. So now, in other words, we're living in JP Morgan's world, right? We're living in, um, and, and, and Philip Drew, I mean, a uh, uh, Colonel House was JP Morgan's man, right? Like this is what they wanted was this kind of reg regimented economy and then they have their opposition, the progressives, saying, no, no, we don't want that. We want exactly more of the same, right? And that's their only opposition. Then come the libertarians and we say, no, abolish the state as much as absolutely possible anyway and let the free market sort it out. And in the free market, the customer is king well, uh, rather than these corrupt interests. Right. So I appreciate you going into to all that detail. Uh, before we move on, because I definitely want to get into- What's a libertarian, right? A libertarian is somebody no. who agrees with me about everything, damn it. Hey, well, this, see, that, that's what's funny about it. But I will spend a little bit more on the libertarian stuff, and then I want to definitely dig into your books. So the thing that's interesting is there was a quote from the Libertarian Institute website that said, whatever it is, we're against it. And I laughed. Right. I thought that was pretty funny because that's kind of the the perception. So I guess what are some of the, the common and biggest misperceptions of a libertarian? Because one thing for me, kind of being outside of the world of libertarianism, is typically from my view, when when you're forced into the Republican-Democrat binary, it seems like libertarians tend to caucus more with Republicans than they do with Democrat. But I know there is a spectrum of libertarianism that some go on to the left side of the spectrum and some go on to the right side. But just briefly give us an idea of what some of the biggest misconceptions are about libertarianism. Yeah. Well, and, and libertarians come from the left and from the right. And then they end up sometimes if they're from the left, they get further right wing or if they come from the right, they get further sure. left wing yeah. or not. Right. Sometimes they stay more left leaning or who knows, you know, um, there's certainly a lot to it. But I mean, I, the obvious misconceptions, the, the most basic misconceptions are like, oh, uh, libertarians are Republicans who smoke pot, which <laughs> I mean, first of all, 
Republicans, again, I mean, conservatives, not that I really explain this well, but conservatives as opponents of the left oftentimes are on the side of liberty, but their own agenda is oftentimes very anti-liberty, right? So we're not Republicans with an exception, right? We essentially, we're the ones with the unified field theory of liberty. And sometimes Republicans agree with us and sometimes Democrats agree with us. But essentially, you know, from the libertarian perspective, this is the true ideology of America, of the Declaration of Independence. This is what we're supposed to all believe in, natural rights theory, and all the rest of this flows from that. Mm-hmm. You know, so in, in that sense, the conservatives and the liberals, the progressives and the uh, populists and the right-wingers and left-wingers of all descriptions, they're all deviationists from the true ideology of America, which is individualism, private property rights, free market capitalism, freedom. Right. The conservatives and the and the liberals are the ones coming up all day with all the exceptions. Freedom for this and this, but not for that, you know, is is their point of view all the time. And we're the ones who are for freedom all the time. In fact, that quote, so people don't get that wrong, whatever it is, we're against it. And that comes from Duck Soup, you know, is a funny satire from the Marx Brothers before. So it's not that we're just nihilists and hate everything. It's the state that we hate because the state is the negation of liberty. It's very existence is based on aggression. Um, I guess it was Hans Hoppe who coined the phrase, the expropriating property protector, right? Like even your local sheriff's department is essentially based on the communist theory that from each according to his ability to each according to his need will get security services from their local sheriff's department, you know? And, And you don't have a choice to opt out. They're going to tax you. And in fact, they're going to send the sheriff to march you out of your own house and take your house from you if it comes down to it with that kind of violent force, you know? So um, we're certainly not that. And then in the past, certainly you've heard, especially from libertarian party types, which those days are over. um, But in the past, you had heard things like, well, we're socially liberal, but fiscally conservative, meaning, well, we want, you know, balanced budgets, but we're for gay marriage, something like that. Right. Which again like both of those things are true, but that's not because we're socially liberal and fiscally conservative. That's because we're libertarians. And those are two things where the right and the left happen to agree with us uh, on some of the time and have it right. Um, but you know, again, you know, essentially libertarianism is its own ideology. It's based on the first premise that every individual human being is born free and with their own natural rights, and their own natural dignity. And that of course includes the right to property, whichever, you know, whatever property they justly acquire and that they have the right to defend themselves and their property with violent force. Right. Um, and then everything else flows from that. Essentially, if you especially read, um, Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard and the Austrian school economists and that kind of thing, um, they're all their arguments essentially flow from, as Mises put it, the central axiom that man acts in at least what he believes to be his own self-interest. And then that goes for government officials too. Um, another major insight of libertarians is what's called public choice theory, which is essentially just expanding individualist type economic uh, you know, viewpoints to government action. So why do we invade uh, Libya? Why do we have a war in Libya? Well, on TV, they say it's because something bad is happening there and we have to go and help, right? But in reality, what's really happening is that Samantha Power and Susan Rice and Hillary Clinton all want promotions. 
and the British want revenge, as an Irish friend of mine was, um, you know, explaining to me uh, earlier today in the email, the, the British, and, and I totally missed this, but it makes sense. They'd been burned on some oil deals by Gaddafi, but Gaddafi had provided major support to the IRA in the 1980s. And this is why the British used the bin Ladenites of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group to try to murder him in 1996 and again in 1999. And then, so America was essentially doing the Brits a favor. Um, they wanted to kill Gaddafi. Now was their chance in 2011 to kind of hijack the Arab Spring and kill Gaddafi. And then Samantha Power, she had run for president, uh, pardon me, she had in, in 2008 when Obama was running for president, she had sided with Obama over Hillary Clinton and in fact, had called Hillary Clinton a monster. And so once Obama got elected, he made Hillary Clinton secretary of state. Oops. Yeah. So that meant Samantha Power got a kind of third rank job on the National Security Council. And as she was quoted by the great Michael Hastings in Rolling Stone um, in the run up to the Libya war, complaining that uh, she had been relegated to doing do-gooder, rinky-dink stuff like helping protect Christians in Iraq. And she wanted a raise and a promotion and some attention from the president. So when the Arab Spring broke out in Tunisia and Egypt, she figured out this was a way she could get a raise and a promotion and some attention from the president. And so she, they pretended that never even mind the threat of bin Ladenite terrorism, September 11th or the Sunni-based insurgency in Iraq or any of that, we're taking the side of Al-Qaeda in Iraq in, Syria, in Libya because that's how to um, protect the civilians. That's how for Samantha Power to get a raise and a promotion, and which is which worked, right? She got to be national security advisor and Susan Rice moved up to ambassador to the United Nations. Or was it the other way around? Yeah, I forget. Um, but anyways, and then and Hillary Clinton was convinced that she could run on this in 2016, that unlike right. W. Bush, who botched Iraq, she would have smart power and the smart war and the great success in Libya. Now, of course, by 2016, she didn't run on that, but that was why she got on board. So, and this is very credibly reported by at least two different sources. I think three different people told the same story, that in the actual White House, you had the uh, lady from the National Security Council, the National Security Advisor, and the Secretary of State, the three screeching Valkyries of war, these three women, uh, Power, Rice, and Clinton. And on the other side, you had the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates. You had the National Security Advisor. Well, let's see, Rice was a UN ambassador because the National Security Advisor was Donilon and his deputy was Rhodes. And then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at that time was Dempsey. And who am I leaving out? Anyway, Secre the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary of Defense, and the National Security Advisor and Deputy National Security Advisor all said, let's not do this. Hmm. But these three women, for their own personal reasons, said, we have to. When you and break then Obama, and so then Obama did it essentially as a favor to Hillary. So in other words, this is the public choice theory, right? Is that these, these people are all still just individuals. And what some guy living in X County out in Nebraska somewhere might conceive of as the national interest actually does not exist. There's no such thing as that. There's only the interests of the people in power and doing what they're doing, which might have a lot to do with explaining our Ukraine policy right now, which could get us all killed in a nuclear war. But inside the bureaucracy, Everybody's got to act tough and everybody has to agree and everybody has to be in the consensus and it'd be absolutely, 
you know, sinful and verboten for anyone to say that this just isn't right. In fact, 20 years ago, I mean, you're a bit younger than me. I don't know how well you remember this, but 20 years ago, they had the American people believing that Iraq was going to attack the United States of America. That Iraq, which at that time consisted of about four or five cities under Saddam Hussein's control, as much of the North and the South had been broken away and kept independent under American protection. Iraq, whose army had been completely smashed a dozen years before and had had no chance to rebuild whatsoever. That had no, no army, no Navy, no Air Force, and no chemical weapons, no nuclear weapons program, no more germs, any of that that Reagan and uh, George W. Bush's father had given him in the 1980s, all of that was gone. The thing was a 100% hoax. And yet, you know, it wasn't just that they lied us into war, which they did, but it's that hundreds or thousands or maybe tens of thousands of people inside the government bought into the lies and believed them themselves. Like We know for a fact that Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz knew that they were lying. But every so-called expert who went on TV essentially was just citing them, right? Was just citing the experts. The experts say, this is all true. The cult of belief in the threat from Iraq, which is just, I mean, it's the Guinness Book of World Records for stupidity of the most unrealistic. It's like saying, I'm going to come to your house and, and hurt you somehow today when I don't even know what city you live in, right? I have no ability whatsoever to threaten you, but you can just lie and pretend to be afraid. I mean, that's the level of, of complete BS that it was. But, it, but anyway, the, the point I'm really trying to get to is the groupthink and the consensus and the way that people can get, you know, brought in to uh, a cult of a lie like that because they're just individuals and they got to do what's right for themselves. You know, the CIA guys complained about this, that, look, we're going to war. So what are you going to do? You're going to throw away your whole career as a CIA analyst debunking the vice president's case for war when they're shopping for a bill of goods. Your job is to provide it. You know, you're going to throw your whole life away, your whole career away, your mortgage and your kid's private school and everything because you're going to tell the truth when you're not going to stop the war anyway. That was a great quote from uh, the Washington Post. It was um, Thomas Ricks from the Washington Post said, essentially paraphrasing the point of view of the editorial uh, directors of the Washington Post. Look, we're going to war anyway. Why worry about all this contrary stuff? Yeah, and, I... I well, no, you're making a great point there about groupthink because whether you have a small business, whether you work in a large corporation at a university or something like that, that is a perva pervasive thing that really goes against truth in a lot of ways. But a lot of things that you were saying there, Scott, go into uh, really the main reasons why I wanted to have you on. And it's a couple of books that you wrote. One's called Fool's Errand. Uh, this was released back in 2017, I believe, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And then one you released last year before Afghanistan fell. And that's enough already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And so I've heard you say this in in other podcasts, you're, you're anti-war. And so uh, I guess you can define a little bit more of what you mean specifically by that, if it's ne necessary. And I don't know if you've ever said this, or if maybe it's just been attributed to you, but you're also an anarchist. But the way that most people understand that word is probably 
or not at all how you would probably mean it and how it applies to this. But uh, uh, one quick question, just like semantically, or I guess, you know, house cleaning on the book. And then I want you to really get into the meat of the points that you're trying to make. So the biggest difference, obviously, between Fool's Errand and Enough Already is Fool's Errand has like a Thomas Sowell level amount of references and citations, but then Enough Already has none. And so it's a history book that has so many truth claims in it. And then you do theorize a a little bit there and it's really easy to see that, but there are no citations. And so if you're reading through, it's almost impossible to really fact check any of the stuff that you're saying, because, you know, I'm a fairly forgiving guy and I'm like, oh yeah, that's probably true what he's saying, but it is a little bit hard to follow. So give me, give me the the reasoning behind so many references in one and then not in the other, but then I don't want you to spend a whole lot of time on that because I really want you to get into the meat of your overall philosophy as to why in general we should be anti-war. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So great stuff there. So first of all, um, on the footnotes enough, uh, on fool's air, fool's air is essentially chapter two of enough already, but what happened was it just grew completely out of control. So I just went ahead and made it a book of its own. Right. Um, and then I picked the thing back up again, uh, with, um, enough already. That's why the, the initial chapters of Jimmy Carter through Bill Clinton are somewhat the same, although there's more sections, um, about Iran and so forth in enough already. Um, but, um, so what happened was, you know, everybody really liked fool's errand, but what I heard a lot from people was that it was so difficult to read because there's so many footnotes and I like them right there at the bottom of the page. I don't want to have to flip back I thought it was great. super convenient, you know? Yeah. And there are like, you know, uh, 1400 something citations in, in fool's errand. Um, so then on enough already, I had a few different considerations for not doing it that way. The first was I was in a real hurry and I was mm-hmm. way behind and I'd done a huge fundraiser to, uh, essentially, you know, cause I published it through my own little Institute. So that was my advance for writing the book was this huge fundraiser I'd done. And it had mm-hmm. been like a year and a half and the damn thing wasn't ready yet. And I felt like I couldn't do another fundraiser for my institute until I coughed up the damn book. And the institute was just absolutely out of money. So I was on a real deadline. I just had to get it out. The other major deadline was Trump was leaving. And it was January 21. And here comes Biden. And even though it is this throwback in Biden, essentially still, it's the end of an era, right? The The first generation of the millennium is over. W. Bush and Obama are ancient history now. Trump's you know, four years was sort of the capstone on that. Now it's the 2020s. As you can tell, nobody talks about radical Islam is coming to kill us anymore. That whole narrative is over. Now it's Russia, 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 China, 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 and all of this. And so um, I thought if I'm going, if I'm going to put out this book about the terror wars, it really has to be now and not, you know, six months into Biden's term or, or, yeah. or nine months into Biden's term or whatever. It just wouldn't, I wanted it to break up. And then But especially it was the fact of what I really wanted to do was make it really accessible to everybody. Um, And, you know, a friend of mine had said, you think Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly have a mess of footnotes in their books? You know, Um, the point is just get the damn thing out. And then the way I write is I tell you where I found out all this stuff anyway, pretty much, Mm -hmm. or at least I write it in a way where you ought to be able to verify. Like, I don't just say, some parts of the government were telling Kuwait to tell Saddam Hussein to go F himself, while other parts of the government were telling him to tell them, oh, yeah. No, I tell you exactly who. It right. was CENTCOM and the DIA who were warning this, and it was the CIA and the State Department who were warning that and whatever. And you can go find that if you Google hard, 
you'll find it. If, if you can't find it, just at google.com, go to google.com slash books and look there. But, you know, essentially all this stuff is available. And on the stuff that's the most controversial uh, kind of points that I think you would have every reason to think that I must be BSing because this can't possibly be right, then I'll have the block quote for you and make it as, you know, especially when we get to Syria, you know, Libya and Syria, but especially when we get to Syria, at the beginning of the book, I explain, look, man, here's whatever, five, 10 quotes of some of the most powerful players involved in this policy explaining why they're backing Al-Qaeda against the Assad government. The Assad government is run by the Alawites, allied with the Shiites, allied with Iran. And America, because of Israel, hates Iran more than they hate Osama bin Laden's suicide bombers. That's why, as I put it in there, that's why the following impossible things in this chapter are true. Like if I just, if I, if I left that out and just said, oh, look, here's Obama back in a bunch of terrorists, you would wonder what? This can't be right. Why would he do that? It's not because he's a secret Muslim from Kenya loyal to Osama bin Laden's goals. That's stupid. So why is he doing it? He's doing it because he's loyal to Israel and Saudi Arabia, just like George W. Bush before him, right? Because just like with the medical industry, our government has been captured, you know, by its satellites, by its client states around the world. And the the Saudi lobby and the Israel lobby have a thousand times as much influence over American foreign policy than the American people do. There's no American people lobby on foreign policy in Washington, D.C. It's all foreign states. You know, the Atlantic Council that decides if what you say on Facebook is true or not is financed by the German government. Well, what interest do they have in keeping NATO in Europe and your dollars and your kin defending theirs for free? right? Um, the whole thing is a confidence game. All of it is a racket. Every bit of it is a racket. So then now, as far as anarchism, let me just say real quick. Yes. When you say anarchism, people picture, picture arson fires at night and, mm -hmm. and the Antifa communists and whatever like that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is Rothbardian libertarianism. It's essentially free market property rights, individualism, capitalism take taken to its ultimate conclusion that the real problem is having a state at all. The problem isn't the market and capitalism. You have to have markets and capitalism or you're going to starve to death. Okay. Sure. You, you, if the, if the salesman and the customer is the same guy, then he doesn't know what the price should be. And if he doesn't know what the price should be, then he doesn't know where the goods and, and services need to be distributed. And so then the people eat their children because that's what happened in China, right? Under Mao. That's what, that's what happens under communism. You have to have prices. But then the problem is, and the commies would be correct to point out, the problem is the capitalists are corrupt. The businessmen aren't devoted to libertarian ideology. They're devoted to their own bottom line. And if that means bribing a congressman and getting a contract, then that's exactly what they'll do. So the problem, you could even say, you know, a lot of times libertarians say the problem ultimately at the end of the day, it's all about the Federal Reserve. And if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve, well, the government wouldn't be able to do all the horrible things that they do. Well, that's true. But who created the Federal Reserve? The Congress. Maybe we just need to go ahead and get rid of the Congress. You know, so... For me, you know, as Rothbard puts it in his essay, do you hate the state? If there's a big red button and you could push it and it would destroy the state right now, would you do it? 
And then so for some libertarians, the answer is, yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe it would be worse. Um, for me, I say, let's go for it. Let's try it out. You know, their mythology is that we need them because at the very least, they're keeping someone worse from replacing them. But the way I look at it, they've been the greatest purveyors of violence on the face of the earth for the last, you know, three quarters of a century at least. When and so I'm no longer giving them that benefit of the doubt. They're clearly the most violent and destructive force in our country. Our own government is, our supposed security force itself. Well, so you obviously that that tinges a lot of your your overall viewpoints in terms of having that ideology. But let's specifically get into Afghanistan, because obviously sure. you spent a lot of time talking about and writing about. Obviously, you know, Fool's Errand was all about getting out of Afghanistan. And then a huge chunk of Enough Already was talking about some of the same and echoing those same sentiments. And you did all of this, obviously, before the U.S. withdrawal, you know, one year ago this month. Um, and so I guess just in general, this is kind of a two part question. And gosh, I mean, we really should have planned for more time today just so we can yeah, really okay. dig in, but but um, what do you think about the withdrawal? Because obviously we have the the benefit of hindsight now. So somebody could be very very dis, you know, dishonorable and disingenuous and take some quotes out of enough already and be like, "See, there's egg on your face." But that that's not really what I'm what I'm here to do. Yeah, we, I don't think so. Have, I yeah, predict the worst in there. I never said everything's going to be great when we leave. Right, right. There's I, not. I, I don't have to take back a single word out of either of those books on Afghanistan. Well, you, you not said, one word. I mean, literally, I have a quote right here in front of me. Things could get very ugly in Afghanistan after the U.S. finally leaves, whether sooner or rather, or sooner or later. So obviously, it's in there. So, what what is your overall viewpoint on the the pullout and kind of how we did it and the drawdown and kind of what it looks like now? Yeah. But also, going back to the very very beginning, so nine eleven happens. Um, if you were the supreme ruler of the United States and you could have and dictated all the terms of what would happen from there, what would mm -hmm. you have done? I know Great that's question. very, very unfair because that's so, so much stuff, but you know, you go for no, it. No, that's fine. No, no, that's fine. So let's start the, the first thing first here is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Okay. Here's what you have to understand. Okay. And this is what they never explain. I explain in the book. Essentially, the goal in, well, let's start with Iraq War II for a second real quick here. Okay. W. Bush's war. In W. Bush's war, he won the war and then he lost. Right. He won the war because he was fighting for the supermajority Shiite Arab population of the country, 60 percent, also in alliance with the Kurds, another 20 percent in the north against the minority 20 percent Sunni Arabs. OK, anyway, point being, we're fighting for the supermajority. So, yes, after we help them win their civil war, they won it. And it's not like it's a stable, you know, government. It's the furthest thing from it, but it is a supermajority Shiite regime that rules in Baghdad. The same people who told W. Bush, thanks for winning the war for us. Now get the hell out. We don't need you anymore. Beat it, right? Hmm. That, that makes sense, okay? Now, America goes in Afghanistan. We're fighting this parallel war at the same time. But in Afghanistan, we're fighting for a coalition of 20% minority groups against the 60%, uh, pardon me, against the 40% plurality, okay? So you, you have the Hazaras, who are largely Shiites, and then you have the Tajiks and the Uzbeks. These are ethnicities, okay? They're at war against the 40% plurality. They're not the majority, but they're the plurality, twice the size of any one of these other ethnic groups, the Pashtuns from the South and the East. Now, Unless America was willing to do like the Soviet Union did and just absolutely carpet bomb these people off the face of the earth, there's no way in the world they were ever going to defeat him. It'd be like sending in a militia from, or, or hell, state guard forces from 
uh, Michigan and Iowa and Oklahoma to take out the people of Texas, right? Like not just to get the government of Austin to surrender, but to pacify the population too. Hmm. You're just not going to pacify the population of Texas. You know what I mean? In fact, right. when the union defeated Texas, the population was much, much smaller. And the entire West of what we now call Texas was all still Indian territory, right? Like this is entirely different game. But imagine, especially never in mind American states, but imagine like Mexico trying to invade and conquer, not just down near Brownsville, but where all the Anglos live in the major cities all the way up to Dallas and Fort Worth and whatever. Mm -hmm. They would have a serious insurgency on their hands. It's really kind of the, the uh, flip Vietnam upside down. There, we're like pretending that we're protecting the independence of the South from the North. Well, here we're protecting the independence of the North from the South. But at the end of the day, it's still one country. And these lines are just artificial. And, and they had, you know, the men on their side. They had time on their side. So after 20 years of war, after all of Bush's escalations, after all of NATO, and after uh, Barack Obama tripled the war, they lost anyway. And, and frankly, the Soviets carpet bombed the place and killed something like a million Afghans in half the time that America was there in 10 years. And they lost too. Carpet bombing the Pashtuns off the face of the earth didn't succeed in quelling the insurgency for them either. It's just, you're talking about a land the size of Texas that's completely landlocked away from the sea and behind mountains. And that's all badlands, mountains like Colorado, deserts like California, or like, you know, out in far west Texas. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this is essentially an incredibly difficult land and, and with a warrior culture. Right. right. That does not, you know, uh, revere peaceful holy men. They revere warriors, you know, um, and, and always have. They like to fight uh, much like Americans do. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's why I call it fool's errand. It could not work. In fact, that the title comes from an interview that I did with a whistleblower named Daniel Davis. He's an army lieutenant colonel. Uh, decorated combat veteran of Iraq War One and Iraq War Two, and Afghanistan. And his job in Afghanistan was, um, he was, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the name off the top of my head, the official title, but he's essentially the rapid supply officer. So there had been problems before, right, of men out in the field and they can't get enough guns and they can't get enough ammo and they can't get enough helmets. And so the army created this rapid response rearmament team to be able to, you know, do like a hot shot anywhere around the country to bring men whatever ammo they needed, whatever they said that they couldn't get, right? So that was his job. And so having that job meant he would travel around the entire country and he would, you know, talk with army, talk with Marines. He'd be in, you know, down in Helmand province in Pashtunistan. He'd be way up north in Kunduz, which there's also Pashtuns there, but it's mostly Tajik and Uzbek up there um, and, and places like that. And so then he broke ranks in 2012 and said, David Petraeus is lying to the American people. David Petraeus is saying that we won this war, that we're winning this war, that we're making progress, that the Taliban is losing, that as he put it, we're, are, we're making progress, but it's fragile and reversible. And, and he broke ranks and he wrote an article in the Air Force Journal saying that Petraeus is lying. We are not making progress. We're losing the war. The more we escalate, the more they escalate. The more people we kill, the more people we recruit into the enemy insurgency. It's not working. 
So then I interviewed Daniel Davis, and this is probably 2012 or 13, you know, just after the surge uh, was finally, you know, begun to draw down. And I said, okay, but what if instead of a completely ridiculous, incompetent fraud like David Petraeus, what if you had an actual competent general in there? And what if instead of having 150,000 men, 140, what if he had 250,000 men? What about then? Or would it still be a fool's errand? And Daniel Davis, Lieutenant Colonel Davis, said it would still be a fool's errand if you took the entire army active force of 500,000 men and put them in there. It would still be a fool's errand. And in fact, as I document in the book, even according to the army specialists' own numbers, that's what they would have to do. They would have to occupy, according to their own theories, they would have to put in 500,000 men, equivalent to the entire U.S. Army's active force, and they'd have to leave them there for 25 more years to finally pacify these people, somehow modernize them, integrate them into America's liberal rules-based world order, a bunch of Pashtun tribesmen, which is, of course, a completely ridiculous hoax. And if you'd given them, you talked about the magic wish and total, you know, warlord authority to decide, if you'd given them 25 more years and 500,000 more men, they wouldn't be any closer to pacifying the Pashtun population of that country at the end of all of that. All they would have done was killed another three quarters of a million people or another half a million people, uh, three quarters of a million people and have still absolutely nothing to show for it anyway. You know, and here's the thing. Now let's go back to September 11th mm -hmm. because, and, and even still we're skipping ahead here, but I'll take your question at face value for what it's worth. Sure. What I would have done is I would have negotiated in good faith with the Taliban for Al Qaeda because as the American people did not understand at the time because government and TV lied to them, Al Qaeda and the Taliban were entirely different creatures and organizations. Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban, hated Osama bin Laden's guts. Mm -hmm. And, um, as even, you know, the most uh, informed CIA people like Milton Beardman, uh, Milton Bearden, who had run Operation Cyclone backing the Mujahideen in the 1980s, he told the Washington Post in September 01 that, look, we've been in active negotiations with the Taliban over Al Qaeda since the Africa embassy bombings of 1998. And we really threatened them after the coal bombing of 2000. And they want rid of bin Laden. They hate him. When bin Laden was exiled from Sudan and went there in 1996, he was expected to be hosted by Rabani. It was just, it happened to be that the Northern Alliance was losing the civil war. Rabani was killed. Um, and the Taliban took over the capital city. So they essentially just were stuck with him. He wasn't their invited guest and, and no blood brother. They, they put all out all this nonsense that he and Mullah Omar had married each other's daughters and all this stuff. That was a lie. Mullah Omar hated bin Laden. There's a great book called An Enemy We Created by Kuhn and Lynn Shoten that says that, um, and, well, and there's a hell of a lot more than that too. Um, but that just, that book is great at describing the absolute separation between these two groups. And um, before September 11th, and this is Bearden talking to the Washington Post. The Taliban would say to the Americans, hey, guess what? Bin Laden is out in the countryside falconing with his friends. <clears throat> hint, hint, elbow, elbow. Mm. 
In other words, he's outside of our protection. We told him to stay home, but he's out in the countryside where we can't keep him safe. So, you know, if you guys were to say, kill him dead, it wouldn't be our fault. And then the Americans respond, turn him over, towelhead. Yeah, but that's what they were just doing, was turning him over. And as Bearden put it, Again, the most qualified CIA man to comment on the subject matter at that time. As, as he put it, the Americans just wouldn't listen. They just would not. He said, the Taliban are sending us signals. We don't do signals. Right. And so they, you know, essentially did refuse to do what it took to either negotiate his transfer or to kill him before September 11th. In fact, Bill Clinton claimed to an Australian audience that in order for him to have bombed bin Laden at his Tarnak farm on the outskirts of Kandahar City, that he would have had to carpet bomb, his words, carpet bomb a little town called Kandahar. Well, Kandahar is a city. It's a giant city, not a small town. And no, he would not have had to carpet bomb it one iota. All he had to do was carpet bomb one house. That's not a carpet bomb. You can do that with one bomb. And it was on the outskirts of town. And he actually made that claim on September the 10th, 2001, to a group of Australian businessmen. That was his excuse for not killing bin Laden when he had the chance, was he claimed he would have had to wipe an entire city off the face of the earth, which is just completely a hoax. Um, uh, And then after September 11th, the Taliban wanted to turn him over. And first they said, listen, we'll turn him over to any Muslim country if you give us not ironclad proof, but give us evidence of Al-Qaeda's role in the September 11th attack. Well, you and I both know they had evidence of the Al-Qaeda's role. They knew Al-Qaeda was going to attack us all summer long. That's even the official story, was that certain cops and certain spies were trying to do their job, but they couldn't make the bureaucracy work tight enough to actually prevent the attack in any way. But there was no question whether Al-Qaeda did it or whether they could have connected bin Laden to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to Ramzi bin al-Sheib and all of these men who had done the attack. It was all, you know, they all met at the Malaysia meeting in 2000 where they planned the coal attack and September 11th and all of that. That was easy. Colin Powell went on Meet the Press, the Secretary of State, said, we are going to give the Taliban a dossier full of evidence of bin Laden's guilt. And then they never did that. And they said, we'll turn them over to any Muslim country. Well, that could have been Jordan or Egypt or any sock puppet, you know, any friendly Muslim country to the United States of America that would have, you know, extradition to Egypt or to Jordan, that would have meant the plane lands on the tarmac while they sign a piece of paper and then the plane takes off again, refuels and takes right off again, lands in Virginia, and then we have a trial, right? You could have done that. They could have done that. And they didn't want to do that. The Taliban then said, okay, fine, we'll give them over to any uh, pardon me. Second, the second one was, we'll turn them over to the Pakistanis, and the Pakistanis rejected that. And I think that must have been at America's insistence, although I don't know that. But uh, General Musharraf, this was his excuse. Well, we can't promise that we can protect him. We'll protect him. Nothing. You're going to hand him right over to the Americans immediately, anyway. What we'll protect him, right? I mean, that was obviously the game. Was he was going to be extradited from wherever he went, and then. On October the 8th, the day that Bush started bombing, they said, all right, all right, all right, we'll turn him over to any third country without seeing any evidence of his guilt. Uh, I should have mentioned in the Pakistan uh, example, they still wanted some evidence. By October 8th, they didn't even want evidence anymore, and they would have turned him over even to Canada or Britain or France or whoever we said. And Bush said, not good enough. They wanted their war. 
And as I demonstrate in the book, and I got more than enough evidence for all of this. In fact, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, the primary source information here is George W. Bush told his government to take the National Security Council, the classified National Security Council meeting minutes and give them all to Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. The guy that was, you know, famously uh, did the Watergate scandal and all that. Right. And so the idea was, oh, we like Woodward. He's a good guy. Well, I mean, I guess he's certainly loyal enough to their agenda when it comes to that. But in his book, Bush at War, he has all the absolute direct quotes straight from the transcriptionists, straight from the horse's mouth. Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, all going on and on and on about attacking Iraq and how we can't win the war in Afghanistan too early or the American people will feel like the war is over. And we need time to expand the war. Rumsfeld said, maybe we should start bombing Baghdad right now, just so the American people get the idea that this war is going to take place over a vast time, uh, period of time and a vast space. And uh, they went over and over and around and around about, look, if we do kill bin Laden, that's not victory. And if we don't kill bin Laden, that's not failure. And, and we don't want the American people to think that we've won the war on terrorism yet. And we don't want them to get that false impression because our agenda is we've got to move on to Baghdad. So is that why you think Tora Bora happens? Why yes. Okay. Condoleezza Rice and, and the CIA. So Rice was the national security advisor. She and the CIA were saying we should not be bombing the Taliban at all. We should be bombing only Al-Qaeda targets, at least the best of our ability. And we should be constantly signaling to the Taliban that, look, man, we don't want to fight you. We're just trying to kill these Arabs in your country, not you. So stay the hell out of our way. Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, and, and you know, the neoconservatives and Bush agreed. They overruled that and said, no, if they're not just going to do whatever we say on a moment's notice, then we're just going to bomb them all too. And so that was contrary to the idea that we wanted to separate them away. No, we want to group them together. And in fact, they decided they wanted to fight the Taliban instead of Al-Qaeda. And now, so this gets us to Tora Bora, but let me rewind just one moment here to just after January 6th in Washington, D.C., okay, in 2021. There's a CIA officer named Robert Grenier. He wrote the book, 88 Days to Kandahar. He had been the station chief in Islamabad, Pakistan uh, on September 11th or right after it. So he was interviewed and I talk about him in the book. He was the guy who had arranged with the Pakistani Army and Frontier Corps um, for um, deconfliction to prevent friendly fire on the assumption that the American Delta Force was going to be chasing Al-Qaeda across the Pakistani border, even though they were refused permission to do so. But that was his role in that, right? He was, he was right up in there. So he does an interview with NPR News about January 6th. And he's just making an analogy Okay, he's not really talking about Afghanistan so much, but he's making an analogy about the American populist right and the January 6th riot. Okay, so, but here's what he says. He goes, at the after September 11th, we decided we could go after Al-Qaeda and, you know, the guys who actually attacked us on September 11th. But we decided instead that it was more important to sort of focus on the, overall milieu of radical Islamism in which they were thriving, meaning taking out the Taliban 
instead of taking out Al-Qaeda. And then his analogy was, so that's why we don't even really want to focus on persecuting the people involved in the riot at the Capitol. We want to target essentially all American right-wingers because they're the Taliban. They're the milieu in which this, you know, these certain individual actors who may or may not have actually committed any crimes um, are thriving in. And so, but there he was just admitting outright that, and in fact, go back and check his language in the interview. You'll see it's at NPR News. And he even says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I forget the exact quotes, but, you know, he talks about primary versus secondary targets and this kind of thing. And he makes it clear that the decision was, we don't really want to focus on Al-Qaeda and the guilty. And as Bush said, only six months after the war, and I, I block quote the entire statement in both books because I don't want anyone to think I'm leaving out any of the context whatsoever. In March of 02, the beginning of March of 02, one half a year after the September 11th attacks, reporter lady asked Bush, how come all you ever do is talk about Saddam Hussein, but you don't ever talk about Osama bin Laden anymore? What about him? And Bush says, hey, uh, and this is in the National Security Council uh, notes, too. He uses uh, words very close to this. As long as bin Laden is on the run, that's good enough for me. Right? It, he says, I, I truly am not that concerned about him. I was concerned back when he was a parasite and had control over the Taliban government and all these things. But now that we've overthrown the Taliban and essentially chased bin Laden away somewhere, that's fine. That's good. And, and she's saying, but geez, I mean, is that right? And then he gets all mad at her. See, you just don't understand, lady, the broad scope of the war on terror. And he's just not smart enough to be subtle enough to do this right. So all that he can essentially do is blurt out, I am bait and switching your dumb ass, stupid lady. Get on board with the program. We have to leave bin Laden out there so you and your mom are still afraid. That... Saddam Hussein is going to what? Sail his Navy over here? No, he's going to give chemical weapons to Osama bin Laden, who's still out there somewhere. And that's how we're going to go to Iraq. And it was just as blatant as could be. And everybody can just go read it themselves over and over again. And so now to, to specify it, Torbor, and it's in both books. Um, in fact, I have more and better sources even in enough already about how the CIA and Delta Force, that's the top tier special operations forces at Tora Bora, um, they weren't even allowed to go to bin Laden's hideout where everybody knew it was his hideout, the lion's den at Tora Bora. He'd been interviewed by CNN and ABC News and The Independent there before. Everybody knew where it was. They weren't even allowed to go there until the very, very end of November, like the last three or four days of November. And then they spent two weeks and change um, you know, essentially begging for reinforcements. At the time, the Green Berets were screwing around way up in Mazari Sharif fighting the Taliban. No Al-Qaeda to be seen anywhere. The Rangers had, well, there were like 20,000 Rangers or something like that were holding down the Bagram Air Base north of Kabul. Oh, and we got to get back to the withdrawal. Don't let me forget. We got to get back to the withdrawal from Afghanistan at the end here. I skipped that. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, you're good. Um, and they had um, uh, uh, more Rangers... I forget Green Berets. They had rain, the 75th Rangers were down in Kandahar, and there and, there were some Al-Qaeda guys there that they were chasing Delta, Delta Force was in there as well. Yeah, no. So Delta Force, oh, down in Kandahar? 
So, oh, in Tora Bora. Like, oh, so at Tora Bora, yes. Yeah, so Delta's yeah. in command there. And they're right. backed up by the CIA paramilitaries of the Special Activities Division, right? And then, but so up way up in Mazari Sharif, you got Green Berets at mm-hmm. the Kandahar, um, uh, pardon me, at the Bagram Air Base. and the Kandahar Air Base, you have Army Rangers. And General Mattis, later uh, famously Donald Trump's Secretary of Defense, had 4,000 marching Marines also in Kandahar. More so than at enough, this time, more Delta, than enough to take care. That's right. So Delta and CIA are begging for reinforcements, begging and begging and begging. And in their words, and you can read this in Gary Bernson's book, Jawbreaker. He's the CIA guy. And the uh, the other book is called Kill Bin Laden. And it's by Dalton Fury, which is the um, the pseudonym for uh, Thomas Greer, who was the lieutenant colonel in charge of the Delta force on the ground there. And they both just say over and over again how frustrated they were that they could not get ground troops to help them seal the border. And then, you know, I give actually undue credit in both books to Bush. And I say, well, you know, they did call in a lot of air power. And I do have to admit that they could have bombed and killed bin Laden that way. But then I only learned this a year ago in task and purpose. They had an interview with the Air Force controller who was embedded with the Delta Force, a special operations uh, Air Force guy embedded with the Delta Force. And it's the one guy responsible for all air traffic control and airstrikes at Tora Bora during that time. And in fact, he says there had been a friendly fire incident elsewhere in the country. So all airstrikes were called off except at Tora Bora. So he had full access to every single American and British plane in Afghanistan at that time, at the beginning of December 2001. And he is the one guy is in charge of all air traffic control and airstrikes. And he's running it all day and night. And then he says, yeah, and then they call me out of there on December the 8th. <clears throat> huh? December the 8th? But bin Laden didn't get away until December the 17th. And I guess I had just never realized or asked the question before how long the airstrikes went on before they stopped them. I just right, sort you of just assumed, assumed it went yeah. on all along. But so they had called off the airstrikes on December the 8th. And then, you know, for another week and a half, the guys were sitting there, you know, gnashing their teeth because they are ma- being made to rely on local Afghan militiamen. And, um, you know, any progress that they make in the daytime, the militia guys go home at night. And the Delta Force guys aren't willing to hold the positions themselves and risk their lives for the thing, or they're, you know, forbidden from doing so either way. And then eventually they all escape on December the 17th. And then the Delta Force is forbidden from following them. And Dalton Fury writes all about this. He did an interview. Anybody can watch his interview on 60 Minutes. He's, you know, sitting there in all full makeup and a fake beard and a hat and sunglasses, whatever. Uh, Anybody can watch it on YouTube. It's Scott Pelley interviewing him. And they have a whole diorama built of Torabor of all the mountains and whatever. And here's the Pakistani border. And what we wanted to do was seal the border so they couldn't get away, but they wouldn't let us seal the border. So then what we wanted to do was we wanted to take helicopters and mine. There was only three valleys of possible escape routes out of there. And so we wanted to mine all those valleys. Nope, they were forbidden from doing so. Oh, what we wanted to do then, we wanted to take Chinook helicopters. We're talking about our Army's top tier special operations forces. We don't take our helicopters, our Chinooks, go over the mountains and then come and meet bin Laden coming from the east and head him off at the pass. Forbidden, declined, denied. And now for the rest of your, your, your whole life, you've heard this. Everyone listening to this show has heard this a million times over. Well, but then bin Laden and his men slipped across the border into Pakistan. 
And then your brain is just supposed to turn off when you hear the magic word slipped. And you're not supposed to ask, well, why can't the Delta Force walk after them? Huh? Because of the, the magical semi-permeable membrane that separates the wilderness of Nangahar province from whatever the hell you call that part of Pakistan? There's no reason in the world that Delta and their special activities division guys couldn't just walk right after them other than they were forbidden by their commander-in-chief, George W. Bush. They were allowed to escape. Just like in Star Wars, they let us go. It's the only explanation for the ease of our escape. It's exactly right. It's treason. And the reason why is because they wanted to lie to your mom and dad that they and you were in danger still. Saddam might give weapons to Osama, who somehow he's in exile in no man's land as far as you could ever get from anywhere without being on the way back again. Um, but anyway, he's going to reach out and touch you again. And as George W. Bush said, absolutely shamelessly over and over and over again 20 years ago, just imagine September 11th again, only this time bin Laden's terrorists armed with Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. It's things like that over and over and over again. And of course, you know, Dick Cheney and the neocons lied over and over that, um, that Iraq had met with Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, and had given him a flask of anthrax. You won't be surprised to find out it was the Israelis who made up that lie and put it in uh, the German newspaper, Dezeit, or, or was it Bild, um, claiming, oh yeah, when, uh, when Saddam Hussein's man met with the lead hijacker, which never happened, yeah, we happened to also be there too, and we just happened to uh, witness uh, the Iraqi, um, what, deputy foreign minister, hand the lead hijacker a flask full of anthrax. Yeah. You buying that? So that was the whole thing. And this is why I will give some credit to the 9-11 truthers. I don't think that they're right that America and, you know, or even, uh, you know, the Israelis or Saudis did the attack. But they might as well have. They exploited it with enough cynicism and dishonesty, the grief and the fear of the American people after that attack, that they might as well have done it. It would have been, at that point, it would have been just one half of a hair more of a sin for them to have actually done that damned attack themselves compared to, I mean, one, their criminal negligence in, um, I mean, this lowercase a, allowing it to happen on their watch. Um, but two, the way they then turn right around, let the chief perpetrator escape, and then try to exploit the American people's fears so they can have their bonus wars. I mean, it's, it's treason. It really was, you know, calling off the effort, refusing to negotiate, and then, and then refusing to allow the reinforcements and calling off the effort against bin Laden was literally like the Uvalde cops holding the parents back, right? It's literally an, an active measure on behalf of the enemy. Well, Scott, I, I appreciate you getting into that detail. And I know we're a little bit past time, but you did want to get into sure. the withdrawal. Yeah. So let me talk about that. So uh, what I meant to say about the whole thing about, um, you know, fighting for a, a coalition of um, minorities against the, against the plurality was about how, and I, I talked about Daniel Davis, how he said, you know, we could never win the war. Well, so Trump knew this and he wanted to get out as soon as he came into power. In fact, there was just a new story about this the other day. Um, 
oh man, I need to collect these footnotes better. Um, you, you might've seen this. It was just the other day. Who published it? Oh, it was, it was, um, it was uh, Millie's book. Millie just published a book. Oh, the chairman's yeah, it's, yeah. It's not and, quite out yet, right? But oh, okay. Just yeah, doing yeah. Leaks. Yeah, yeah, so were leaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have excerpts, yeah. right? So he's talking about how Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan and Korea, and right. how they just overruled him and just said no. And this is also in Woodward's, um, I believe Woodward's second book on Trump. The first one is Fear. The second one is Rage. I believe it's in Rage, where um, where Mattis brags to him, or, or Tillerson does, one or the other. He was the Secretary of State. That yeah, Trump in March of um, twenty seventeen. You know, in other words, you know, four, uh, four, six weeks after taking power, Trump ordered America, ordered a full withdrawal from Afghanistan and South Korea. And Mattis and Tillerson turned to each other and just said, we're not doing that. And they agreed that they would just be insubordinate and they would refuse to carry out his orders. And they did. But of course, he is such a damn flake that he didn't pick up the story the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day and say, either do what I say or I'll put you in jail. Mr., you know, uh, especially to his military men, to his generals, he certainly could have fired all of his, um, uh, the civilians obstructing him. But then once they got rid of Bannon, Bannon was the only one who agreed with Trump about wanting to get out of Afghanistan. So once they got rid of Bannon, by uh, August of 2021, they took him out to Camp David. And you can see pictures of this. It's Trump and like 25 generals, admirals, and CIA spies. And then he announced that, yeah, we're escalating. We're sending 21,000 more troops and we're going to massively escalate the air war. And he did. He killed hundreds of thousands of people. It's got barely any coverage, but he escalated a massive air war during his four years in power. However, he also negotiated. And it's unbelievable. Uh, I, I still am not 100% sure how this happened. But Trump went to Zalmay Khalilzad who's extremely influential neoconservative dating back to, you know, studied with uh, under Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago in the late 60s and was friends with Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl and all of those guys. Um, I, I cite him over and over and over again in the book, advising the very worst policies from 1979 all the way through today. But there, somehow Trump got this guy to sign in blood or something, his oath that he was going to make a deal with the Taliban and he was going to really make a deal with the Taliban. He was going to not screw Trump over. He really was going to, to seek this goal out and finish it. And he did. He signed. And the, step one was excluding the government in Kabul from the negotiations. And step two was recognizing the Taliban have already won this war. The war is already over. It is the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The only thing remaining is for the Americans to get out of the way of final victory, but that's it. And so they said, listen, our only conditions for leaving are that you maintain the ceasefire between now and when we're all the way out and that you promise not to host Al-Qaeda or other foreign-oriented terrorists inside your country to attack outside your country after we leave. And that was it, and which is, you know, unenforceable anyway. Scouts honor. Promise not to bring Al-Qaeda back and we're cool. And so that they signed that deal. Now, there was no other deal that the Taliban would sign. You have to understand, they had won the war. They weren't going to sign a deal that said anything less than we're getting the hell out of their way. They weren't going to make a deal. And, and look, all through Bush and Obama, they said, yeah, we'll make a deal with the Taliban as long as the Kabul government can be included. Back to natural, uh, back to um, um, uh, uh, public choice theory, right? The individuals 
running or even the state itself, the, the, the government in Kabul, the puppet government in Kabul, they had no incentive to negotiate with the Taliban. They had every incentive to keep the war with the Taliban going so that the Americans would stay and prop them up. They make peace with the Taliban, then we can leave. They would prefer that we stay. So any so for Bush and Obama to insist that they get to participate in the negotiations means the negotiations will never go anywhere, right? And so um, that was Trump and Khalil Zad's great invention was they said, screw the government in Kabul. We don't care. We're negotiating this exit anyway. And then I don't know, you know, what in the world kind of promises they made to each other. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in that scene where Trump somehow got Zameh Khalilzad to make this promise and mean it, that he was going to sign this deal and get us the hell out of there, that he wasn't going to represent any other institutional interest in America other than the president of the United States who has given him this job, which is still a miracle to me. I still, I mean, if I have to explain, it's because they wanted to get, part of the establishment wanted to get out of there so they could focus on pivoting to China instead, that kind of thing. And many of them did write like that at the time. And they did know that if they were going to, um, and, and they were so dishonest. I mean, you can, you can see David Petraeus arguing about this in the media this week. And, and a year ago, all these hawks were so dishonestly saying, well, all we have to do is stay. All we have to do is tell the Taliban, no, we don't want to leave. We want to stay. And then we'll just stay. Well, but that just wasn't true. We had had the ceasefire with them for 18 months already, more. If we had said, stay, we're going to stay. And the deal is off. They would have gone right back to war against us. And then, and they would have still been very much in control of more than half of the country. And they would have very much threatened the American regime in Kunduz and Mazari Sharif and even in Kabul, even with our troops there. And if they were, you know, fully at war back against the Americans or the Americans wanted to somehow fully roll Taliban power back to their home bases in Nangarhar and Kandahar and Helmand province and that kind of thing, they would have had to send another 100,000 men. They would have had to redo Obama's surge again. They lost the war. I think that must have been, it can't have been a promise to Trump. That must have been what it was with Khalilzad. Maybe he was the one reading the riot act to Trump and just explaining. Nothing other than a massive, renewed effort there is going to turn this tide. So now we get to Joe Biden. Trump gets himself unelected. And he did, you know, Doug McGregor did try to have him order all troops out of Afghanistan in December of 2020. Before it's too late, before the Democrats get in here and ruin it, you got to get them out now. And he he did order, he wrote up an order and, and gave an order to get all of our troops out of Afghanistan, Syria, and Somalia. And then his secretary of defense was like, no, we're not doing this. And he was like, oh, okay. And back down again and withdrew the order. So then he changed the order to we're leaving 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, 2,500 troops in Iraq and whatever the number was. In, oh, and we're pulling the troops out of Somalia, but just to Djibouti, where they can still attack Somalia from Djibouti. So, yeah, great. Um, then Biden comes in and Biden doesn't want to leave on Trump's timeline because then it's Trump's withdrawal. And if it looks good, then Trump gets the credit for it. Biden wants it to be his withdrawal. But this is a huge mistake. Because the withdrawal date in the agreement was, uh, pardon me, May the 1st of 2021. Well, that's essentially the first day of duck season over there, man, right? Like the first day of hunting season. So when Biden said, no, we're going to leave in the middle of September instead, 
he was delaying America's timeline for getting out of the country. But he was not delaying the Taliban's timeline for taking the son of a bitch over, right? right. So now, so that was his first huge mistake. He should have just said, a deal's a deal. Trump signed it. I might have liked to delay it a little, but I can't. And so we're just going to go and get out by May 1st. And he would have had to, you know, kick some ass inside the Pentagon and around the bureaucracy and insist, but he could have done that. Once he failed to do that, now he had a huge problem because you see the army, as we saw, the army of the puppet government we created in Kabul and the civilian puppet government in, that we created in Kabul itself could not stand without American support at all. So the two big humiliations of the withdrawal were not that we lost the war. We lost the war under Barack Obama 10 years ago. Um, the, the humiliations were that the Afghan army turned over about, or, you know, were, had no choice but to turn over, a, you know, billions, three or $4 billion worth of military equipment to the Taliban. It's a huge humiliation. Like when ISIS took over all the bases in Western Iraq, now they got American howitzers and Humvees and all the rest, right? That's embarrassing. Um, then also the Afghan government just completely fell and ceased to exist while the Americans were still there. And they ended up having to rely on the Taliban to provide security while they're on their way out, of, out at the airport. And why are they leaving from the airport? Because they turned over the Bagram Air Base to the Afghan army, which again, could not exist without their support. So the Afghan army had turned right around and handed the whole air base over to the Taliban. Now you have the Americans trying to get out at this airport that has one measly airstrip. And, um, you know, are in all this trouble and they're asking the Taliban to provide them security. And the Taliban just walked right into the capital city. They didn't invade it. They didn't use armored vehicles. They just walked right in in their sandals, you know. So, but here's the thing. The only way to have avoided that, whether they left on the deadline or after it, would have been for Biden to tell the American people straight up, listen, the government that me and Barack Obama built... The army that me and Barack Obama built, it's a joke, man. It's a Potemkin village. It'll never last. And so as we withdraw, I hope you understand we have no choice but to completely stab the Afghan army in the back and destroy all the weapons that we left for them, right? For him to do that would have been absolute suicide. And all right. the Republican hawks would have said that the Afghan government would have been fine. Donald Trump left it in great shape but you undermined it by destroying all their weapons, right? So politically speaking, that was, uh, you know, almost impossible for him to do. And then same thing with the government in Kabul. Look, this thing is a joke. We got to get all our civilians out of here now before it's a giant fall of Saigon type crisis. Because the fact of the matter is, sorry to say, this puppet government always was essentially a government created for a foreign purpose. It is not a legitimate Afghan government. It does not have popular sovereignty. It will not stand after we leave. And so we got to get out now. Both of those things would have been absolute political humiliations. So the White House calculated that they'll send Biden out there and say, it's okay for us to leave, not because we lost the war and what the hell are you going to do? No, it's okay for us to leave because we won the war. That's right. We did a great job and we built a 300,000 man army that'll have no problem standing up and protecting Afghanistan after we leave. So that's why it's okay to leave. 
right? And then that became the ultimate humiliation as the whole thing disintegrated on his way out. So in other words, you know, the only way to win the game is not to play. And the only way to, you know, back out and lose and save any face whatsoever is to tell the truth. And they couldn't do that. They couldn't say, we did this all for 20 years. It made no sense. We're cutting off all support for the Afghan army and the Afghan state. And we know for a fact that they are both going to cease to exist the day after tomorrow. So we're going to go ahead and destroy all the weapons we've left them. And we're going to say sorry. And then that's all. And politically, that was impossible. So then what did they do? They got the bloodiest black eye in the world leaving um, with literal, you know, uh, panicking Afghans clinging to the landing gear and falling to their deaths, which was totally unnecessary, by the way. Right. I mean, after that happened, planes were still taking off from Kabul airport for three weeks after that or whatever. Those people had not been so panicked and waited their turn. They might have got out of there. But anyway, uh, it's an absolute catastrophe to see on TV. And then, of course, a suicide bomber killed, I believe it was 11 Marines and two others. It's 13 total. I believe it was 11 Marines. And these are young kids, too. Like yeah. four or five of them born after September 11th. It's their only deployment there. They deployed there only to help in the evacuation and then leave and, and got blown to bits out there. Um, and then, you know, in a perfectly fitting punctuation point on the whole thing, the military launched a drone strike and killed an entirely innocent family as their last major act there. And just, you know, as but the Biden administration it. was trying to prove their over the horizon capabilities and then to, to do something like that. Yeah. And it, you know, it was a stupid mistake. Essentially they were following a Corolla around that they thought was the ISIS guy. And then somehow they started following the wrong Corolla Somebody went on a lunch break, came back or whatever, went and had a smoke and came back and started following yeah, the wrong was, car around. It was an entire, I think it was seven children. It was an entire family and the, and and the young an worker. Yeah. The yeah. guy that they killed spent his entire life was driving around Kabul, delivering drinking water and soybeans to desperately poor people and was trying to get into the United States and become an American, was trying to, you know, flee and all that. And, and he was working for an American NGO, literally giving water and soybeans to people who otherwise would be dead without his water and soybeans. That's the guy right. they killed, the salt of the earth. And 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 the whole war is like that, by the way. It was nothing but a goddamn catastrophe the whole time. Thousands of people killed, hundreds of thousands of innocent people uh, blown to bits and their lives destroyed just for absolutely nothing. And, well, and we shouldn't forget it and we shouldn't forgive so-called quote-unquote ourselves for it either. Like this was all some, you know... Um, uh, you know, misunderstanding or set of bad choices made in good faith or something like that. I mean, at the very least, and I'm not one for collective punishment, you know, like anybody deserves anything to happen um, to them over this or anything like that. But I do believe that it is the responsibility of the American people to at least be honest with themselves, to try to seek out the truth and to try to form a consensus about whether we want to, you know, be doing these things. It's not like just arguing over, you know, pothole repair or arguing over, you know, the rate of increase of social security checks or something like that. We're talking about destroying people, blowing them to little bitty pieces with high explosives. You better be sure you have a good reason to do that to somebody if you're going to do that to somebody. And, you know, the Afghan war is just a virtually endless series of atrocities. You know, just for one example, in 
2008, I think it was, an Apache helicopter blew away a group of young boys out gathering firewood. It was eight boys, and the ninth one survived because part of a tree fell on top of him, so the helicopter couldn't see him and finish the job. And he came back and he told the story. And these were all young kids. They're like 9, 10, 13 years old, right around there. And, you know, I don't know about you exactly, but in my life, you know, where I grew up in my neighborhood, eight of us, that was about right. That would have been all the boys from the neighborhood, right? Me and all of my friends for three or four blocks in any direction. That was us. We, we might very well have been out there, um, you know, playing guns in the woods, uh, something like that, running around. And, and just imagine, eight doesn't sound like that big of a number, but eight, eight would be a huge number if somebody with a, a Hellfire missile or, or with a, a helicopter firing machine guns had blown away me and my seven closest friends when we were kids. What, imagine for just one moment what that would have done in your neighborhood, you and, and eight kids, you and seven kids you went to kindergarten and first grade with, all blown to kingdom come by a foreign military occupying force flying an Apache gunship against little children out getting firewood, right? It would have been the end of your mom, your friends' moms, their families, their everything, their worlds. That's just another day of the Afghan war. And blown to bits, by the way. We're talking about blown apart, you know, Uvalde style with these high caliber bullets. For, for nothing at all in the name of helping these people, right? Not, not in the name of punishing them for September 11th. Everyone agrees they didn't do it. The Taliban didn't do it. The Afghan people sure as hell didn't do it. So we're only killing them because we love them so much because we're trying to build them a school and turn their, their wilderness into a Westphalian nation state. And then we act like, oh, well, whatever. You know what? Let's just move on to the next one. We don't even have to think about this stuff, know about it, think about it, much less feel guilty about it, much less try to make a change in the way that our government runs. And you can read in the New York Times where they say, look, honestly, man, what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan is really bad, right? Never mind Libya and Syria and Yemen. Who even cares about that? But yeah, what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, it is really bad. But that's why it's so important that we pour all these arms into Ukraine now. This is our absolution for all of our sins that we committed in the Middle East over the last 20 years by getting the people of Ukraine into the same mess. Get it? And Scott, it's it plays into a lot of the narrative games and, and perhaps uh, next year we can have you back on because I do want to talk about Ukraine, Russia, and China, but unfortunately we, we are out of time. But I do have one last question because I can almost hear my audience and you know I can almost hear myself as I was reading through the book. And I know you've been asked this before. So as you read through some of these things and as you read the tone and tenor of, of the book, and if you were to perceive the tone and tenor of you in this interview, some people might draw the conclusion that, wow, this guy just hates America. This guy just hates his country. And, you know, they could easily dismiss you uh, that way, or they could easily hate you or make you their enemy or something like that. Now, that's not exactly my read of it, but obviously there's some. There's a big difference between hating something and distrusting it or hating something and wanting it to be the better version of its purported self or something like that, that hopefully that makes sense. But when you get that pushback, because I know you've gotten it before that, oh, well, Scott just hates America. How do you respond to that? What, what would be your direct response to that question? Well, I mean, my immediate response is grow up, right? Like, what is this? We're supposed we're all little children. I remember thinking about this on September the 12th, right? That like, Okay, we've all had like a good 
16 hours, 20 hours to be very upset and emotional. Now can we be grownups? Now can we be adults and think about this? Instead of being, you know, just completely crybaby, emotional, knee-jerk reaction? And then the answer was no, we can't, you know? Um, and, and look, I mean, I don't know. In a way, like, if people are really that binary and childish and, and, and simplistic and they're thinking, I almost don't know what to do for you. Are you Jimmy Carter? If Jimmy Carter runs a red light and, and, and uh, you know, hits some old lady and, and breaks her elbow, are you responsible for that? Because you're an American? How come you hate America, dude? Why would you criticize Jimmy Carter for running a red light and breaking some lady's elbow? That doesn't follow at all. That's stupid. Well, guess what? You're not Bill Clinton either. And you're not Barack Obama either. And frankly, if you believed in George W. Bush, you were really damned dumb to do so. And you know it too. So uh, what do you want me to say? There, there's 350 million people live on however many billion square acres in the land between Canada and Mexico. A certain percentage of you are dumb enough to cheer for this stuff. You are responsible for that. I'm not. Okay, all the people, the millions of people who protested in the streets and said this is an aggressive war and that the guy with the beard and the guy with the mustache are different dudes, dude. Those people aren't responsible. The people who are responsible are the ones who are responsible. The liars and those who willfully believed in them. And if that's you, well, good. I'm glad your little bitty feelings are hurt, crybaby. But meanwhile, America, our nation is worse off because of you. You helped them. You abetted the blowing of $10 trillion and 2 million lives. So, yeah, I won't call it hate. How about, yeah, contempt that I have for the people who willfully went along with this? And, and yes, and the polls all prove this. The more you went to Protestant church and Catholic church, the more you spent time in Sunday school, the more you supported torture and war during George W. Bush. That's the truth. They showed it over and over and over again. Who supports torture in America? Evangelical Christians. Why? Because of their slavish devotion to that golden idol, the presidency. When every single one of them must have known that, geez, I'm taking a risk that Jesus is going to send me to be tortured by Satan forever and ever and ever and ever for being an avowed torture supporter. Nah, well, little cognitive dissonance. Don't worry about it. And they supported torture. And yeah, they tortured 113 people to death that we can prove. The military and the CIA. And the people who supposedly support George Washington's constitution, did they rally around the Eighth Amendment and prosecutions for George W. Bush and uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and George Tenet for torturing people to death? No, they rallied around the torturers. 
Why? Because they were afraid. Afraid of what? Radical Islam. The boogeyman that they don't even try to scare you with anymore. Which just goes to prove that they knew that they were lying to you all along. They were just jerking your chain. Radical Islam, Bin Ladenite, Wahhabist suicide bombers, Salafist suicide bombers, they work for us, dude. Since 1979 until 2001, and then again, starting in 2006 through 2022. The war against the Bin Ladenites was this tiny little aberration. They're the loyal servants of the American empire. And they're, well, somewhat loyal servants of the American empire and their Saudi satellite state. But meanwhile, both of my books are endorsed by Colonel Douglas McGregor, who you know as the hero of the great tank battle of Iraq War I and the regular on the Tucker Carlson show on Fox News, endorsed by Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis and Matthew Ho and Danny Sherson. And, you know, go look at the comments on amazon.com. Go look at audible.com and, and at Fool's Aaron and Enough Already and go see how many soldiers say, I was there, this book is correct. That's what they all say. And everywhere I go, I give speeches to libertarians and, and others. And everywhere I go, people come up to me and go, I was a ranger, I was there. And then the next words out of their mouth are, thank you for telling the truth about what happened. And no one has ever said to me, F you Horton, you don't know what you're talking about. Cause I do, and they know that I do. Well, Scott, and, I- oh, Simple as that. So look, it, and, and honestly, like the book is written in a way where I'm not pandering to soldiers whatsoever. But I'm also not insulting them either. I mean, the book is about the guys who run the think tanks, the guys who make the policy, the guys who represent the foreign interests involved and the army officers involved, some of them. But the book is not, you know, about why you're a bad person for joining the army when you were 17 and your dad encouraged you to or whatever kind of thing. That's not what it's about. Um, and, and everywhere I go, I get nothing but gratitude from soldiers for telling them the truth because they spent their whole lifetime being, uh, you know, ingesting a giant pile of crap. And they know it. And look, I mean, think about, man, there've been 3 million Americans, something like that, have gone to Iraq and Afghanistan and back. And every single one of them knows that it was for nothing. Every single one of them knows that if they did anything redeeming over there, it was protecting their buddy, right? It was saving somebody's life in a very narrow circumstance, right? But fighting to free the people of Ramadi? Get the hell out of here. Well, Scott, I can I can certainly co-sign uh, the tone and tenor of these books for any of you guys that are listening to this that are veterans that I, I would co-sign that, that you don't really get after the veterans in any way. And man, there's, there's so much more left that we could discuss. But as of for now, that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Yeah, well, I guess I'm a little sorry about that last rant. I mean, um, I guess... I don't, I don't feel like disclaiming to anyone or pandering to anyone. You know what? It's the truth and you're not supposed to like it, right? You're supposed to appreciate it for being true, uh, no matter how tough it is. So, you know, again, the book is not written to be an insult against the vets. It's not written to be an insult against the Americans who uh, supported the wars. It's supposed to be enough to clue you in. And it was really written again to the question about the lack of footnotes there. I wrote the book, not just for, you know, enough already we're talking about, um, not just for my people to read, you know, people who are fans of my show and antiwar.com and that kind of thing, but I wanted it 
I want it for people to give it to their people, right? I want you to read it and then give it to your right-wing uncle and go, hey, Mr. Support of the War of the Last 20 Years, I want to see what you have to say after you read this. And that's the purpose of the book is to change people's mind, to win people over. And, you know, in a way, I guess you could argue it's written in sort of a patriotic and a conservative sort of a tone. It is, you know, it is, and I am a patriot, and it is written in this, in with the eye toward, you know, what I want, what I think is best for this country, um, which is to end all this militarism and renounce the foreign empire. It's the worst thing about our society. So, um, you know, if I sound a little defensive about, oh, anti-American or whatever, I would just, you know, I apologize for that. But I guess the point of it is that, I mean, people should just ask themselves, if you want to be honest and not a crybaby about it, ask yourself, why would I bother writing this book? Because I hate America and I'm trying to talk bad about it. I could just go on RT News every day and do that if I just wanted to, you know, badmouth the land of my birth, uh, the place where I live to this day. You know, that's obviously not the point. The point is I'm trying to be free. And I want to live in a free society where the rest of my fellow countrymen also can be free. But as every fan of Star Wars and everyone who can see out their eyeballs or even if they're blind, listen with their ears in this society for the last 20, 30 years, the empire is destroying America. It's the worst thing about our society is the violence that we spread to the world all of the lies and hypocrisy that are all, you know, manufactured in order to, you know, sustain it all, the money blown, the resentment created. I mean, we started that one question with what would you do on sept if you were in charge after September 11th? Mm -hmm. Well, what would I do if I was in charge when Saddam Hussein asked for American support to invade Iran? What would I do in the CIA? Said we want to back the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. What would I do if Saddam Hussein was asking me for a green light to invade Kuwait or if Saudi Arabia was asking me to occupy their country in order to bomb Iraq to force them back out again? The answer is I would have said no, 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 no the whole time. And then September 11th would have never happened. September 11th happened because Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton's mercenaries turned against us because H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton kept our forces in Saudi Arabia after Iraq War One, This is, you know, the, the great Ron Paul Giuliani moment of 2000, uh, uh, 2007. He said, get the hell out of here, Giuliani. They don't hate us because we're free. They hate us because we've been bombing them for 10 years before September 11th ever happened. And Giuliani said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've heard a lot of absurd explanations for September 11th, but I've never heard something so absurd as they were angry that we were bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia. I demand you take that back. And Ron Paul goes, no, I won't take it back. The CIA coined the phrase blowback. It means consequences of CIA policies, of American foreign policies. And if you think we just go around bombing the world and, that, and without creating violent reaction against the American people, then you do that at our own peril. And that's how you got us into this mess in the first place. And, and Ron Paul, there he was in 2007, feeding the American people the most bitter pill, beating down America's mayor, the most wonderful American to ever exist, other than George W. Bush, uh, who somehow was a hero, even though 9-11 happened on his watch, and he'd only been in power for eight months preceding it. Um, but beating down America's mayor, Ron Paul, who no one ever heard of before, 
feeding the American people the most bitter pill in the world, which was not that America deserved it, but that our government had provoked it. And, and that woke up 25 million people, became Ron Paul revolutionaries overnight. That created the Ron Paul revolution because Ron Paul was willing to tell the truth to the American people. And then who supported Ron Paul? Well, he got more donations and support and presumably votes from active duty and retired military than all the other candidates combined. And that's including John McCain, the supposed war hero who was never one. Um, and that includes in 2012 when Barack Obama was the sitting commander in chief and was running for reelection. Um, Ron raised more money than all the other Republicans and Obama too combined. And that was because he supported peace and non-interventionism in the name of the United States Constitution and the American national interest. And he gave right-wingers a permission slip. You don't have to believe in this stuff anymore. This is a bunch of crap and you know it. And they said, really? Oh, okay, great. Right? Same thing happened with Donald Trump. Donald Trump said, and because he's Donald Trump, he said it like this. Going to the Middle East was the worst thing anyone ever did. It was the dumbest decision anyone ever made. And he said it like that because he was trying to hold, you know, hang it as a millstone around the neck of Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton who supported it all and whose you know, uh, brother and best friend had got us into it all and husband too. Um, and so he told the American people, F these wars. We should have nothing to do with war in the Middle East at all. And what he essentially was doing was he was telling right-wingers, it's okay for you to agree with that. This is not Michael Moore, the big, fat, communist, gluttonous, uh, you know, uh, millionaire hypocrite. This is Donald freaking Trump. And he's telling you, you can be tough and you can be macho and you can drink hard liquor. Oh, he doesn't drink, but you can be a tough guy with a pickup truck and you can still think that this war is stupid. That spending $10 trillion and killing 2 million people has gotten us absolutely nothing. And you'd be a damn fool to still believe in it. And what's the point of clinging to foolish beliefs? You don't have to admit that you were a fool before, but you're continuing to be a fool now. So just snap out of it and, you know, grow up and admit it. Some of us knew better all along. Some of us, it took 21 years. Welcome to the club, man. It should have never been this way at all. You know, we should, Bill Clinton should have got us out of uh, Saudi Arabia the moment he took office in 1993, and he didn't. And in fact, what happened? One month and one week later, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which later merged with the Azam group and became Al-Qaeda, blew up the World Trade Center. They were trying to knock one tower over into the other. And the guy who cooked the bomb, Ramzi uh, bin al-Sheib, I mean, no, 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 pardon me, uh, um, uh, Ramzi Youssef, wrote letters to all the New York newspapers saying, why is he doing this? He's doing this because of American support for Israel and their violence against the Palestinians and the Lebanese and because of American bases in Saudi Arabia being used to bomb and blockade the people of Iraq even after we already won the war against them more than a year before. That was when Bill Clinton had been in power for a month and a week. And what did he do? He kept the bases in Saudi. He kept bombing Iraq and blockading Iraq from them for eight years straight, even while he was backing the terrorists in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya. And then we're supposed to be surprised that this blows back to bite us. We're supposed to believe that history began on September 11th, that you don't have to know anything about what Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, or Bill Clinton did to get us into this mess. You just need to let, Bill, uh, let George Bush's son solve it. 
And as we talked about, George Bush, who then used the chemical weapons that no longer existed, that his own father had sold Saddam Hussein as the pretext to launch an entire separate aggressive war. Those are the facts. You want to spin for that? Anybody want to come and lay down and go, no, it's radical Islam. When all we're talking about is the CIA's pet mercenaries, sometimes going a little bit off the reservation. But look, America is supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria right now. The entire Idlib province is under the control of Jabhat al-Nusra and Haras al-Din and ISIS under the protection of the USA and our allies, the Turks. We're supporting Al-Qaeda in their war against the Shiites in Yemen right now. There's your war on terrorism. But I'm, I'm anti-American for knowing better than that? the hell out of here. All it is is I'm right and the people who don't agree are still wrong. That's all. And if grown men, especially a bunch of tough guy war veterans and right wingers who, you know, spend uh, five days a week at the gym making their muscles big, can't handle the truth, I guess I feel sorry for them. Well, Scott, I appreciate all the time you've given us today. I certainly appreciate your passion on this subject and the myriad of subjects. Thank you so much for coming on on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Hell yeah. Thanks for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Scott Horton. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Scott's website. I've got a link to the Libertarian Institute, which we talked about there at the top of the podcast. And then both books that we spent a lot of time uh, speaking about, at least the content therein. And that's Enough Already and Fool's Errand. You can check both of those out. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs> <laughs>